And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, let's start off with prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we do pray that you would teach us by your spirit through this, your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so quick reminder concerning where we are in our study of Mark's gospel. We've been making our way through. We've seen a series of conflicts between the religious leaders and Jesus as he is in the temple. It's the final week of his life. It's his Passion Week. In just three days, he will be on the cross. And so here he is, having come through a series of confrontations in which the scribes, the Pharisees, the Herodians, everybody, with any measure of power in Israel, was putting Jesus to the test, trying to find a way to trap him. And then the passage you know, we read last week and studied last week ends with uh, the text telling us that no one dared ask him any more questions. And so Jesus says, I've got a question for you, scribes. Now, what I want to do here in the introduction is just kind of explain what's happening. And then in the body of the sermon, I want to wrestle a little bit with the implications of what's happening. So I'll give you the three points when we get to that point. But for now, let's just, you know, pay attention to what's happening here. Jesus says to them, you know, first, he kind of affirms, you know, that Christ is the son of David. The scribes say this. He doesn't contradict that. He doesn't say that they're wrong. And so he affirms, yes, the Christ, the Messiah is the son of David. Now, again, the scribes knew that. Any Jewish person knew that. Like, they knew that that's what the Old Testament taught. From the promise that God gave to David in 2 Samuel seven sixteen, your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. The son of David will be the Messiah. Isaiah 9, 2, 9, 6, and 7, familiar passages for us. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. And we, we, we celebrate this at Christmas. You know, we look at this passage knowing that this is referring to Jesus. In the Old Testament, they knew that it referred to a Messiah, to a Savior who was coming. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration, when I will raise up a righteous branch of David. In other words, someone from David's line. He will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. So, you know, that's, that's established. The scribes got it. Jewish people got it. But then Jesus goes on and he asks this question. First, he pulls in Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. A, 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 a psalm, Psalm 110, this verse is the first verse with which everyone would have been very familiar. Every scribe, every Jewish person would have said, yeah, that psalm points to the Messiah, the Messiah who is the son of David. And so then Jesus you know, poses the, the riddle, if you were. He, he asked the question, If the Messiah is David's son, how can he be his Lord? Because everyone would have known that David had no earthly authority higher than him. 
He was the king. There was no one above him. And no one from David's line would be considered above him. No son would be considered, you know, more prominent than his father in that day. And so, you know, Psalm 110, David is attributing to both God and the Messiah homage by referring them to them both as Lord. So, so Jesus says, okay, guys, who is he? How can it be that David would worship his son? So who then is his son? And you, can, you can imagine like their, their, their minds blowing, right? Imagine, ah, I, was, I was sharing this with my growth group this week. How I wish I could have been there just to watch. You know, just to be the fly on the wall watching people as they react to what Jesus is doing all throughout these series of conflicts in this portion of Mark's gospel. And you can picture their minds being like, wait, nobody's ever asked that question before. We've never tried to figure out how those two things could be reconciled together. And of course, they don't have an answer. And then the text ends with us being told that the crowd, you know, like, and I, I would have been there, right? I would have been the one going, ah. Busted. I would have heard him gladly in that sense. Because that really is the sense in which they heard him. Herod, it said, the text tells us, using those same words, Herod heard John the Baptist gladly. And that didn't keep John the Baptist from being beheaded by Herod. And the crowd heard Jesus gladly. And yet, they would also very soon, within hours, cry out, crucify him. So they heard him gladly, but they didn't really hear him gladly in the sense that they didn't take what he was saying to heart. And we tend to do the same thing with God's word, don't we? I mean, there are parts of God's word that we are eager to hear gladly. And there are other parts of God's word that we are very quick to ignore because we know if, if we really have to listen to those parts, well, our hearts won't exactly be glad, will they? So, if we are going to really hear Jesus gladly, which is the point of reading our Bibles, if we are really going to hear Jesus gladly, if we're really going to take to heart what he says to us, then we have to understand what he's saying in these few verses here about the Bible. Jesus is telling us things here about the Bible that we need to understand in order to really hear him gladly. So three things that we're going to hear from this text in order to really hear God's word gladly. Three things that Jesus tells us about the Bible. First, that the Bible is the inspired word of God. The Bible is the inspired word of God. Secondly, Jesus tells us that it's all about him. It's all about me, Jesus says. And then third, that it calls us to live now in light of his return. So the Bible is the inspired word of God. It's all about Jesus, and it calls us to live now in light of his return. So let's jump in. First, the Bible is the inspired word of God. Jesus hints at this in verse 36, and it's so easy just to, you know, blow right by it. David himself, Jesus says, this is 1236 of Mark, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. 
That phrase is so important because what Jesus is hinting at is what the rest of the New Testament will unpack, especially in two places. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, the apostle Paul writes, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God, the person of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, breathed out by God. It is pointing to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of the, of the word of God by the Holy Spirit. Uh, uh, Paul, I'm sorry, Peter in 2 Peter 1.21 says this, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What's Peter saying there in 2 Peter 1.21? The authors, the people who wrote the Bible, did not fall into a trance. They wrote from their own personalities. They wrote their own words, and yet they were led along by the Holy Spirit in order to ensure that what they wrote was God's word, and it was safeguarded from error. And that applies to what Jesus is saying back here in our text about David. David, inspired by God. David, in the Holy Spirit, wrote Psalm 110, verse 1. Now, implication of that. If this is God's word, we need to submit to it. All of it. Now, we need to understand it in order to rightly submit to it. We need to know how to read our Bibles in order to know what it says. We need to be able to apply some basics when it comes to uh, understanding how to receive truth and understand truth from poetry, for instance, or from wisdom literature, or from historical narrative, or from the epistles, right? I mean, just how do we read the Bible literarily according to its literature, its, uh, its genre, Right? We need to understand, be able to apply some of those principles. We need to understand, for instance, how the, the law of God was used in the Old Testament and how it carries over into the New Testament. These are things that are just you know, kind of Bible reading 101 that we all need to be able to do. This is part of basic training when it comes to being a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, I love to recommend books. I'm going to recommend two on this topic, and I'll post them on our Facebook page, and I'll make sure they go out in our Grace Weekly on Tuesday. Uh, but two books I want to encourage you to pick up. How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And then a second book I want to recommend, uh, Getting the Message by Dan Doriani. Dan was one of my seminary professors. Getting the Message by Dan Doriani. I'll, I'll post these again. You'll be able to find them. Again, the, the important thing is here, you don't have to go to seminary in order to have the tools that you need to rightly interpret the Word of God, in order to understand what it says. There are just two resources I've recommended just there that are very accessible. So I encourage you to pick them up so that we can understand rightly what the Word of God says. But at the end of the day, we must submit to all that it says. We don't get to pick and choose, and that is not easy to do. It doesn't come naturally, does it? Wendy and I have been using uh, Paul Tripp's daily devotional, New Morning Mercies, uh, and, you know, that devotional just has a way of just getting right in your face. And... Uh, <laughs> 
April 29th, so this is just a few days ago. If you've, if you've used the devotional, you know that he's got a little like one sentence or two sentence you know, heading at the top that's a real zinger. And then he goes on to zing you a little bit more before he gets to the gospel at the end. Thank you, Paul. But here's the zinger on the top of the page on April 29th. Today you will be tempted to buy into the delusion that you're smarter than God, that your way is better than his. Nothing like opening that up first thing in the morning and being reminded of what is infinitely true concerning you. Tripp goes on and says this, we really do have the ability to convince ourselves that we know what's best and that we really don't need wisdom greater than our own. We minimize the danger of what God calls dangerous We question the need for the boundaries that God has set for us. And in the face of our own sin, we argue that it's not so bad after all. Every day in some situation or relationship, we are tempted to think that we are smarter than God. That is true. That's part of our human condition. In other words, with Adam and Eve, we are willing to entertain the question, did God really say? Every person does that. Every culture does that. We just do it with respect to different parts of the Bible. Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, points this out when it comes to his, uh, his chapter on Scripture. He says, you know, every culture has some problem with the Bible. Every culture does. Uh, think about individual Western culture, our own culture, right? We, our culture, has a problem with what the Bible says about sex, Sex has to be confined to marriage. Sex has to be between one man and one woman only. Our culture, you know, this culture of individual expressivism, you know, it says, hey, I should be able to have sex with whoever I want, whenever I want. In the name of personal freedom, our culture has a major problem with what the Bible says about sex. But when it comes to the Bible, what the Bible says about forgiveness and about turning the other cheek and not judging, our culture's like, I'm down with that. And then think about Middle Eastern culture. Middle Eastern culture is very fine with what the Bible says about sex. In fact, Middle Eastern culture may say it doesn't go quite far enough. But when it comes to this idea of forgiveness and turning the other cheek and showing mercy to someone who's offended you, oh, they have a problem with that. Now, the question that we, every culture, but hey, here we are, Western individualistic culture, the water that we swim in and don't know that we're wet. The question that we need to be asking ourselves is what makes our cultural sensitivities any better than anybody else's? Who says that the things that bother us about the Bible should bother everybody because those are universal problems? Actually, this, Keller points out, this actually helps to prove that the Bible is from God and not from man. Everybody's got a problem with it at some point. (laughs) If there was one culture in history that had no problem with the Bible, could agree with every single thing in it, then you would say, okay, well, that's the culture that wrote it. That's the culture that produced it. But everybody's got some problem with the Bible. Now, here's the beautiful thing. The Bible speaks into every culture as well. Every culture, every person throughout history finds its story understood in light of the greater story that is the word of God and what he's doing through Jesus Christ. But at the same time, every culture and every individual is called to submit to all of what God's word says and not just the parts 
that we find comfortable. So we need to hear Jesus gladly by submitting to what the Word of God says. That starts with humbling ourselves before God. It involves rolling up our sleeves and acquiring the tools to really get into the Word and and dig into it and understand what it says, but it starts with assuming a posture of humility before the Creator God who inspired this Word and ensured its preservation for us down to this very day. The Bible is the inspired word of God. Secondly, Jesus tells us in this passage that the Bible is actually all about him. Again, if he is the Messiah, the, his, you know, he's, he's talking about himself. When the people worship him, when, the, when, um, when Bartimaeus, his, his blindness is healed and he cries out, Son of David, have mercy, prior to that, right? In all these ways, Jesus does not contradict who he is as the Messiah. And that's happening here as well in this passage. To be able to say to the, to the scribes, standing before them, Psalm 110.1, the Lord says to my Lord, who then is David's son, Jesus says. He's implying, it's, it's me. And we know that because of the rest of uh, Jesus' ministry. We know from um, Luke 24, for instance, that Jesus is going to clearly teach that the entire Old Testament is about him. Let me just read these passages to you. Luke 24, 25 to 27. Jesus, after his resurrection, um, comes alongside two disciples that are on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus says this, Luke 24, 25 to 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then later, with the disciples, here in Luke 24, 44 to 48, Jesus says this, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. In other words, this is what I taught you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written in the Old Testament. He's saying, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Jesus is saying, unambiguously, the Old Testament is about me. All the Bible points to me, the focus of the entire Old Testament. The central theme of every book, the storyline that holds it all together is Jesus. His coming, his suffering, his glory. Implication then. Before the Bible is anything else, it is a story about Jesus to be believed. Before the Bible is anything else, it is a story about Jesus to be believed. It's not merely a story to be believed. There are commands to be obeyed. There is wisdom to be gained. There is knowledge to be acquired. But before it's any of those things, the Bible must be to us a story to be believed. Not a field guide for life. 
not a source of history to better understand ancient Near Eastern culture or the culture of the Roman Empire, not a collection of morality tales in which we learn how to be like Daniel or Moses or whomever. It is, first and foremost, the story of Jesus Christ. And the tragic irony of this passage is that the one who is the central figure in human history was standing right there in front of them, and they weren't seeing it. They weren't seeing it. Listen, through the proclamation of the word of God, Jesus Christ is standing in front of you. He's calling you to believe his story. He's calling you to believe that history is all about his glory. Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, ends by telling this story. He talks about a woman in his church who said that during a particularly dark time in her life, she was praying over and over, God, help me find you. God, help me find you. And a Christian, Christian friend of hers came along and said, you know what, I want to encourage you to change that prayer around a little bit. Why don't you instead pray, God, come and find me? Because Jesus is, after all, the good shepherd who goes after his sheep. So why don't you pray, come and find me? What I want to encourage you to do, whether you are a person who professes faith in Christ but just feels like you don't know God as richly and deeply as you want to know God, or someone who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ at all and wants to know more about this God, perhaps you're here because you've been crying out, God, help me find you. Would you instead take your Bible if you own one, take one with you, we have some out on the table out there if you don't own one, begin to read it praying God, come and find me. Come and find me because I want to know you. Jesus tells us the Bible is the inspired word of God. He tells us that the Bible is all about him. It is his story. But then third, Jesus tells us that the Bible calls us to live now in light of his return. Again, look back at the passage back in Mark 12. And look at the quotation from Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. You go on and read all of Psalm 110. You see that it's this beautiful psalm about one who is king and one who is priest. This this priestly king or this king priest who the rest of scripture helps us understand is Jesus who both is the king who rules over all and the priest who offered himself as the sacrifice so that people might be reconciled to God and yet there's still this until there's this pointing beyond the time of David beyond the time of Christ to the time of his return Even here in this passage, in Psalm 10, we're getting pointed, Psalm 110, we're getting pointed beyond the time of Christ to the time of his return. And then the Bible ends that way as well. Revelation's a hard book to read. It helps to know that what Revelation, the book of Revelation is doing is presenting truths to us in very pictorial ways. 
But still, at the end of Revelation, the very last you know, paragraph or two of the Bible, we read this. Revelation 22, 16, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this, whatever, verse 18, sorry, verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am, Jesus says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus is saying here, I'm, I'm the Messiah. I'm the son of David who is the son of God. I am the bright morning star, which is figurative language to talk about the fact that this new age that is coming, this new day that is dawning, Jesus is the one who brings that to bear. It is his light, the light of his glory in which we find light. Revelation twenty-two seventeen: the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Until this day when Jesus Christ returns, the hunger and cry of the heart of the church, the bride of Christ, and the spirit indwelling us, the Holy Spirit, is come, Lord Jesus, come back. And if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, the invitation from this passage that I just read is come and drink. Come and find the thirst that you have not been able to have satisfied anywhere else in this world. Come and find it satisfied in the one who is himself the source of living water, Jesus Christ. In the Revelation 22, verse 20, second to last verse in the entire Bible, he who testifies to these things, that is Jesus, says, Surely I am coming soon. To which the church replies, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. In other words, the Bible isn't merely a word from God for now. It is that. But don't let your reading of the Bible be limited by the horizon of your lifetime or of time itself. Because the Bible is also, and I might say ultimately, a word from God for now to help us live and hope in light of then, in light of the day of Christ's return. Receive this word gladly. It's a video on YouTube of a group of people receiving the word of God Gladly. It's the Kimyal tribe. They live in a remote region of Indonesia. And in 2010, over 200 tribespeople were lining a dirt runway in the mountains. They were dancing and singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, in their own language. Why? Because a small plane was approaching, carrying the first complete set of the New Testament in the Kimyal language. It showed an interview of a pastor named Semia. He said this, in the past, only part of God's word was translated into our language, but now we're going to have it from Matthew to Revelation. Our hearts are no longer heavy. 
A literacy teacher named Senanab said this, this year, 2010, is a very important year. It's a year of rejoicing, a year of exalting God's name. Before, it wasn't like this, but today, through God's Son, Jesus Christ, God has brought us his word. So today, we are living in the light. When the plane landed, the singing and the dancing was at a fever pitch. But when the door of that small plane opened, and a shrink-wrapped bundle of Bibles was handed to some men from the tribe. There was silence, and there was tears. A pastor named Siud prayed in a loud voice for everyone to hear, Oh God, the plan which you had from the beginning regarding your kimyols, the month that you set, the day that you set, has come to pass today. You thought that we should see your word in our language. Today, the day you had chose for this to be fulfilled has come to pass. You have placed your word in our hands, and for this I give you praise. The men and the women around them were in tears. And then an older woman said this, We have taken God's word, we have accepted it, We've put it into our hearts, and now we're going to give it to you young people who need to also take it and accept it and walk with God as he teaches in the Bible. And then she and some of the older men handed it off to the younger believers who were themselves in tears. And then there was more dancing and singing and shouts as the whole tribe made their way back in procession, back into their village, holding their Bibles. That is receiving the word of God gladly. Now, that's not meant to say that every time we open our Bibles, we should experience that level of joy. Don't hear me say that. But do hear me say that as we come before the word of God, as we open it up and study it for ourselves, there must be perhaps a level of gratitude and thankfulness that we don't experience right now because we've taken it for granted. And I would encourage you to pray for a greater hunger and thirst. Because that thirst that will ultimately be fulfilled one day when Jesus Christ returned, we get returns, we get partial fulfillment of that thirst, partial satiation of that hunger as we come before the bread of life, the bread of the word of God, and take and eat and discover that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do, we do pray that we would hold in high regard this word that you have preserved for us. Or Lord, would you let it shape our, our thinking and our feeling and our acting, our planning. Lord, would you humble us and help us to submit ourselves to it out of reverence for you. And then would you, by your spirit, the same spirit that inspired men to write this Bible. Lord, your same spirit indwells us to help us understand and take it to heart. So would you, by your spirit, through your word, be working in us to deepen our love for you and to broaden our love for others. Help us, O oh God, by your spirit, through your word, to better understand the depth of our own sin and the magnitude of your mercy shown to us in Jesus Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.